Welcome to Disabilities Inc. I'm Stephanie Tong, Director of Parent and Family Engagement at Include NYC. Today, I have a great privilege of speaking with Dr. Kenneth Rosenberg about his film and book, Bedlam, as he shines light on America's mental health system. Dr. Rosenberg is first and foremost a psychiatrist with a specialty in addiction medicine. He's an author, speaker, and filmmaker. His books focus on a range of mental health topics, including mental health activism, addiction, and relationships. He has been featured on NBC and CNN. He is a Peabody award-winning producer and director. His films focus on a variety of mental health issues. Welcome, Dr. Rosenberg. Um, it was your film Bedlam which introduced us to your work and you've been actively engaged in our mental health systems for decades and so we're really delighted to have you as our expert to help us better understand the mental health systems in America. Um, your breadth of work is wide ranging today but we want to focus a little bit on more of the access of services, navigating mental health systems and as well as advocacy. Um, so there's so much to unpack today so why don't we go ahead and get started. Great, thanks so much for having me, pleasure. So I wanted to first talk a little bit about your film, um, Bedlam. Um, you highlight several stories of those suffering from serious mental illness. And, you know, as a professional who's worked in um, community mental health clinics, you know, I felt a really wide range of emotions when I saw the, the, the film. Um, I think one of the things I wanted to hear from you is what motivated you to, to write this film and, and, you know, because I think I took a lot away from it. So I was just curious about what, what, what motivated you. Yeah, sure. So I'm a psychiatrist, I'm a filmmaker, and I, I'm a writer, sometimes writer. And I think as a psychiatrist, I realized that this is really the great untold story of psychiatry. And it's, and it's one of the greatest social crises of our time, of the 20th century, now 21st century. So I think that that was enough of a reason. I, I've made several films for HBO and PBS. Uh, since medical school, I've directed films. Uh, this is maybe what the seventh film. I make one every five or 10 years or so, uh, uh, you know, in between my practice. Um, but I thought this one was a particularly important one to make because this film focused on people with severe mental illnesses people who often are marginalized, criminalized, put in jails, live in streets, get just about the worst care and have the greatest need. So the question that I approached my film and book with was why has our country and why has my profession abandoned and how has my country and how has my profession abandoned our neediest citizens? And that's why I wanted to make the film. And write the book. And what do you hope people take away from the film and book? Well, I think that firstly that we have abandoned these people. Mm -hmm. That's you know we've criminalized them, which in a, is in of itself criminal to put people in jail who ought to be in hospitals, to allow people to languish on the streets who ought to be in care of some sort, mm -hmm. to give medications that are helpful but not helpful enough and are somewhat antiquated. You know, in the rest of medicine, if you have an illness, you get a cocktail or some kind of medicine or some kind of regimen that's just about two or three or five years old for the most part, especially with you know diseases like cancer and cardiovascular disease. If you have a psychiatric illness, you get a medicine which is maybe new, but it's based on a molecule that's decades old and that's pretty much from the last century. So I think that you know we 
we have not done right by those, uh, our fellow citizens with se severe mental illness. Again, I'm talking about people with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, you know, suicidal depression. And it, what I hope people get out of this is, what the heck, that's wrong. And, you know, we need to do something as citizens because these are our loved ones, these are ourselves, these are, there's a large segment of the population and the money is being spent very poorly. So even if you don't give a darn about anyone else except your taxes, you still should be outraged because, you know, the, the money to be, the money that is being used on putting people with mental illness in jail is astronomical. How much does it cost to put someone in jail with a mental illness? I mean, close to $100,000, perhaps. It's a lot of money. And that money could be used much more wisely on housing and outpatient treatment and community engagement and enforcing sobriety and all sorts of wraparound services that are much cheaper, much more efficient, and much more humane than jail and the streets. And I appreciate your you know, delving in, in, in your work on how we have to look at this as a, a holistic picture, right? That we have to really touch on all, all, a lot of the human pieces that we need to live, like housing, food. We all want to have, be able to, to ideally live a productive life and, and work in some way. Uh, we want to all have quality health care, education, and all those things, right? And, and, and it sounds like you're saying, like, we need to look at all of those when we, when we treat someone with severe mental illness. So why do you think we as a society have overlooked this or, or brushed it on the rug or however we want to call it? Many, many, many reasons. You know, uh, first of all, it's scary. Second of all, it's not easily treated. You know, I don't think there's necessarily a conspiracy against treating people with severe mental illness, but the, the problems that they endure are complicated. Uh, how to get someone well who fights against getting well sometimes because if you have a severe mental illness, sometimes you don't know that you're, you know, you're sick uh, uh, and you certainly don't want, and sometimes for good reason, don't want what the medical establishment has to offer you. Um, so how do you deal with that? You know, uh, uh, so I think that it's largely the illnesses. It's largely that the illnesses are so formidable and so difficult that we've kind of, you know, turned the blind eye. We've taken kind of a laissez-faire attitude. You know, we we used to indiscriminately, in my opinion, lock people up in very bad places. So now we don't do that. Good for us, but we let them die in the jails and streets. That's not not a great alternative, in my opinion. Right. There has to be a happier medium than there has to be a better option than that. So I think the first and foremost reason we've done it is because these are very hard illnesses to treat, very hard to understand. They're complicated, they're costly, they, they cause a lot of trauma for the people who experience the illnesses and for their family members and often for society. So I think that, you know, we all want to do so. We often take the most expedient approach, which is to do nothing and to let people kind of languish, as I say, in the jails and streets. Um, also, you know, there's lots of prejudice out there, lots of discrimination against people with mental illness, especially people with severe mental illness. Uh, people with severe mental illness, with mental, mental illness of any sort, have a lot of shame. That's the third reason. They don't talk about it. 
And when you don't talk about something, how the heck are we as a society going to fix it when we don't talk about it? We don't demand that there's better treatment. Could you imagine if we let people with Alzheimer's disease, you know, live in jails and streets? Their family members would would say, "Are you know, this is unacceptable." Senators, Congress people would would mount a, a, an offense immediately. But somehow, when it has to do with severe mental illness, we kind of let it go. People don't speak up enough. People with the illnesses, family members don't speak enough, up enough. And so, you know, um, they get kind of pushed aside. So I think there's many reasons why. But it's the illness first and foremost. It's the obstacles to treatment. It's the shame associated with the illness. And it's, you know, the cost and complexity of the problem. I think for the multiple reasons that you've mentioned, uh, the complexities of it, and, and I think, as you mentioned, sometimes the shame, and it's not necessarily always a pretty a pretty disease or picture, right, or illness. Um, in, in some of the behaviors that are exhibited, so sometimes it can feel very difficult to uh, connect with someone with maybe some severe mental illness and some things that that um, come out from that. And so I think one thing that came out from your film and book that um, caught my attention was the idea of acting early and that there are ways that, you know, caregivers and families can support individuals with mental illness. I think whether severe or, or not um, early, um, what do you think are some signs that people can be observant of these early signs? Yeah, great question. So, yeah, I mean, we have made some good advances in the recognition of these illnesses. So one of the main approaches that the National Institute on Mental Health and other organizations is taking is early intervention. We don't have that many advances in later intervention, but certainly if we intervene early, it's much easier to treat any illness Forget about illnesses. It's much easier to take care of any problem if you take care of it early on, you know? If you try to take care of your smoking habit when you have like a few cigarettes, it's much easier than after you've been smoking, you know, two packs a day for 20 years. If you have any kind of cancer, it's much easier to treat that cancer at stage one or stage zero than stage four. Likewise, if you have this mental illness of any sort, particularly a severe mental illness like schizophrenia serious bipolar disorder, it's best to treat that early. And what are the signs you ask of early uh, of the illness? Well, you know, the, the truth is it's not, it's not, I don't think for your listeners, it's any, you know, anyone who should be uh, required to, to diagnose themselves or their family members. But first, if you have a, 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 if you have a suspicion that you have a serious mental illness, you should go to your doctor. You should see a qualified psychiatrist. Um, but early symptoms are magical thinking. That's an early symptom of a psychotic disorder. Social withdrawal, poor social functioning, poor school functioning, if people are in school, poor job functioning, you know, just kind of pulling back from people. It, it depends on the illness. With an illness like schizophrenia, which is largely a thought disorder, disorder of thinking, you know, people have magical thoughts or paranoid thoughts, and 
it doesn't really rise to the level of being a fulminant illness, but creates a suspicion that something is, is wrong. With a mood disorder, like bipolar disorder, people are more depressed and more moody than usual. Um, they don't get out of bed. They, they might even have some passive suicidal ideation. They might feel life is hopeless and they're worthless. Um, and they have this kind of mood thing that they can't seem to get a handle on. It doesn't last for an hour a day, but you know, lasts for a long time. Uh, and you know, other major problems like substance abuse. You know, people use recreational drugs, but sometimes that begins to take over. So you know, you're not using the drug; the drug is doing you. You know, the drug is running your life. You're not deciding it's time for a drink. The drink is saying wake up, it's time to have your drink, it's time to have some opiates. So I think that, you know, those are some of the signs of the major illnesses that people could recognize. But I think, it, you know, honestly, Stephanie, whenever there's a question, whenever there's a problem, it's not, medical, uh, uh, medical advice at this point, it's pretty easy to get, you know, um, wherever you live, I mean, we're talking about in you know, New York City, there's an urgent care on every street corner. We have uh, five or six really good psychiatric emergency rooms. Um, we have uh, you know, a, a project called Thrive NYC. You know, Thrive is an organization where, where people can kind of get help and phone numbers that people can call. I mean, help is not that far away. I think the bigger reason why people don't get early diagnosis, honestly, is that they're so ashamed and they're so afraid and they don't want to talk to anyone. And as I say, the treatments aren't perfect and you know, it's scary to see a psychiatrist, and scary to get a diagnosis, but I would say it's a lot scarier to live with untreated illness for years and years. What can, I think you bring up a good point. What can people say, for example, when, uh, they they have their first visit and and kind of I think sometimes the mystery of the process feels scary. Uh, yeah, you know I think it's it's tough because I think that you know you want to you want to find a good psychiatrist or you want to find a good counselor you could talk to. You want to find someone who you feel respects you. You want to have some agency in in the matter. You know you want to try to not get help in a busy emergency room, but get help from a counseling service or a counseling, counseling center. I mean, I imagine that you have places that people can call, and I hope you'll, you'll give those numbers in New York City and around, but there, there's, you know, National Alliance on Mental Illness is a great resource. Um, online, you can find so much, but I think that how do you deal with the, the, the uh, the intimidation of seeing a professional and the fear of that, you know, it's not easy, but I think you find someone who you could talk to and someone you respect and you kind of listen to them. You know, we all get advice, good advice from friends or healthcare professionals, and we often dismiss it if it doesn't fit with what we um, what we have in mind. But I would I would, you know, encourage your listeners, when they talk to a counselor or a psychologist or psychiatrist, to have an open mind about what the possibilities are and uh, you know, not be so caught in the kind of shameful thinking about what if this is, you know, 
a, a disease and it's just trying to be open to other people. It, it's hard, it's hard. And, and to be honest, you know, psychiatrists in the past have not made it easier. Sometimes they've been very judgmental and not treated people necessarily well. So, you know, there's, there's, there's truth in the, um, in the fact that, you know, you, that people don't feel so comfortable necessarily talking to just anyone about their severe or mild mental illness. But uh, it's real important to do. I think something that you brought up um, that led into my next question is, you know, talking about a little bit about the connection and relationship that you start to feel when you first meet someone and how can someone, you know, maybe in the first one, two visits or so decide a little bit whether this person is someone they want to continue seeing. Yeah. Well, you know, again, you have, you, you have a lot of professionals in the city. You have a lot of people you could talk. I, I can encourage people who are patients, consumers, if you will, to shop around. You know, I think especially when you're talking about mental health professionals, um, there's all kinds. I also encourage people to find someone who has really good credentials. You know, just because someone says, I'm a therapist, I could help you. You know, unfortunately, all health professionals feel Tell you, I'm the one, I'm the only one who can help you. But that's not the case. You know, a lot of therapy, a lot of treating someone with a psychiatric illness has a lot to do with personal chemistry and how you get along with them. And, but, you know, they could have degrees from the best medical centers and you still could think they're a jerk and you want to not talk to them. That's, that's understandable. But, you know, you want to find a qualified person. So what does that mean? at least a licensed social worker, licensed in the state of New York, licensed psychologist, licensed psychiatrist, someone who maybe is, you know, un involved in a medical center that you respect or feel comfortable with. Um, your PCP, your primary care physician, is often a good source of, you know, finding mental health care. And again, I think there's lots of good resources in New York through Thrive and NAMI, National Alliance on Mental Illness. That could really help direct you to find someone to talk to. So it sounds like sometimes shopping around, because I think sometimes a question that I get, even from friends, is do you have someone you could recommend me? And that's a tough question to answer, right? And so I think this is one of the reasons why I pose what what's what should people look for, you know, and 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 kind of how do they find the right fit for them? But yeah, it's a, it's a tough because you know, you don't if you if you've never met a psychologist or a social worker, a therapist, a psychiatrist, you don't know, you know what to expect, but you know, you have to, it's complicated, isn't it, Stephanie? Because on one hand, you have to have an open mind. On the other hand, you have to be discriminating, you know, and uh, if something seems wrong or unethical or, you know, or too expensive or too weird, you know, find the next person. Yeah, it sounds like feeling self-agency, right? Yes, exactly. you, you don't have to just go with the first person on your oh on your insurance, or that you can change and 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 make a list of what you're looking for. And, and absolutely, yeah. I think that leads into my next question, which is also like, how do we know when it's not working? Mm. Well, that's a good question. So it depends on what illnesses we're talking about. I think when we're talking about you know, anxiety problems or mild depression problems or what we call adjustment disorders where people have a hard time adjusting to 
to uh, you know to to life's situations, it's easier to know if it's not working because you're not getting better. You know, um, if you're going to therapy for six months every week or sometimes twice a week, and, and it's not getting better, your symptoms aren't going away or not even getting better. Well, time to switch up, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have to give it a shot. Sometimes you have to give it a, a couple of sessions. Sometimes you have to give it a couple of months. But you know, don't you'll need to give it a couple of years to see if it's working for the most part. Um, and it depends what therapy we're talking about. Depends what illness we're talking about. But for the most part, if you have a mild psychiatric problem, I would call mild anxiety disorder, panic disorder, depression. You know, you want you want your symptoms to go away, and with with therapy and medication, they should be able to at least get diminished. And then if they're not getting diminished, time to move on to the next person to, to help you. Now, if you have a severe mental illness, a psychotic disorder, something that really impairs your thinking, like a manic episode of a bipolar disorder, or like a psychotic episode of schizophrenia, then it's harder because you know, it's very, very hard for you to evaluate anything when your mind is not working properly. And that puts patients, clients, consumers, whatever you want to call them, it puts people and it puts us in a very, very difficult position because we have to make a decision about our provider. Do we trust them? Are they doing the right thing? When our mind might not be working properly, when we might be influenced by paranoia, or we might even be influenced by hallucinations. Um, so that's that's a t- that's a tougher question. I would say two things if you have to evaluate your health in that situation. One is I'd say find someone you trust because if you really trust them, you can hang with them. You know, even if you don't completely agree with them. And honestly, if you knew, if the patient knew what what to do, you won't even need a professional. So at the end of the day, you do have to rely on someone else's advice. The second thing is I would, you know, trust someone else to help guide you. Parent, a child, a loved one, a best friend, a partner, whatever. Um, and I would check it out with them. But if you're a professional and the professional person you're seeing, who you've trusted in the past, and your family member or loved one or partner or best friend say, no, you're wrong. You need help. This is what you should be doing. I think then you kind of got to listen to them, especially if we're talking about those severe mental illnesses which compromise your thinking. It's a tough position to be in, right? Isn't it? You know, you have to try to get better while your mind is kind of all dysfunctional. That's, that's a really hard position to be in. So you have to find people you trust who could guide you Sort of like if you, you know, didn't have your vision, you would have to find ways to get around without and 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 folks who could tell you and help you know where you are, or find ways as as blind people do, you know, people with any disability do. But that's really hard. I might, you know, my heart goes out to those folks to to evaluate that question: Are they seeing the right person? At the same time, knowing that their mind is not hundred percent. It's hard to know what to trust, right? And I think some, uh, something that I think is really helpful for professionals to keep in mind is 
to, con to connect with family members, right? Ideally, if there's a family member to connect with, I know there are certain situations where a person is pretty isolated, but if you can connect with family members and, and involve them in part of the treatment and meet with them ideally regularly um, so that it's more of a process as a family than just as an individual. And I think that goes for a lot of different, um, for a lot of different treatments, right? Um, but I think especially in those cases and especially with young children and, and young adults as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think something else that I was thinking of is just demystifying about whether we need short-term services, long-term services. And I think that's another sometimes fear of committing to, to therapy or, or, or mental health services is once I see someone, does that mean I have to see them forever? And that I think that's also a choice for a lot of people that you can make. I think there are certain instances when it, like you, as you mentioned, if it's more serious, it's probably really helpful to have a long-term care team that you support you, but that yes. you also have agency in um, your, your, your care as well, right? Yes. So when we're talking about severe mental illnesses, for instance, people often write what's called advanced directives, which says, and I write about this in my book, which says, if you get sick, here's what you want to happen, here's what you don't want to happen. As we were just talking about, you know, if you, get, if you become psychotic, you may not know, uh, you know what's best for yourself. You may not make the best decisions. But so that's, sometimes it's really good to sort of write it out to a loved one, to a doctor, to your team, to your family. Say, you know, if I get psychotic again, here's what I want to happen, here's what I don't want to happen and they have some kind of direction, which they could actually present to the doctor and the medical team and say, you know, here's, here's what they said when they were able to make that decision. But yeah, you're absolutely right. You, people need to have agency. You need to have agency to get well. You can't just, you know, especially mental health treatment, you have to be a participant. You can't just be a bump on a log and, you know, they're gonna give you something and you're gonna be fine. That's, that's not how it works. Right. And I think something else that we don't always think about is the advocacy piece in mental health mm. and that we can be advocates as professionals, as users, right? And building a community. So what do you, what would you recommend? I think another piece that I think I took away from, um, from watching your film is, is a sense of hope and advocacy. And so I think there are pieces where, like I said, depending on where you sit, right? Um, so maybe we could start first if you're a consumer, you know, how can, how can you be an advocate, whether you're a consumer or maybe family member of a consumer? Yeah, well, there's lots of great organizations you can join. Uh, National Alliance on Mental Illness is one of many, and they advocate for legislation. And they have really great meetings where you get together. You know, one of the ways that you can advocate for yourself is with the help of others who are in a similar situation. It's, that gives you fellowship, that gives you support, that gives you guidance, and that gives you, um, you know, you can get together and help make political change. We see in the book Bedlam that I wrote and in the film Bedlam, we see how, you know, family members came together and really changed the laws in Los Angeles. Uh, and I think that's, you know, really, really what we need. We see that in our first lady, you know, Charlene McRae, who's, who, 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 you know, Bill de Blasio's wife, who has founded Thrive NYC. 
and really came to it from the point of view of her own experience and her daughter's experience in particular, but her own experience as well, which she talks about pretty freely. She talks about it in my book, in fact. And, um, you know, I think that we, we have to take that experience that we have as patients, as family members, as consumers, and, you know, use it to, to change this very broken system. And I, I think not mutually exclusive, um, you know, because I think there can be there's certain overlap, but what do you feel like professionals can do, whether you're new to the field or whether you're a veteran, right? I think oh, it's a great question. Well, I, think, I, I feel I think, like sometimes we are silent in some ways because we feel like the process should be private. But I think there are pieces where we need to be really vocal. Yeah, look, we, you know, you, you have to be private about your, your cases. You cannot share anything about your cases. You can't get your patients to go on marches with you. There's no reason why you can't march. I mean, NAMI has a walk every, every year. There's, and, and there's lots of political, you know, uh, action committees that people can get involved in. Uh, uh, everything from the right to the left. I mean, Black Lives Matter is largely an organization which was founded for, for people with, you know, serious mental illness. Um, Patrice Colors, who co-founded the organization, she appears in the film, she's in my book. You know, she founded that organization because her brother, she was for, afraid of her brother being beaten by the police, like so many you know, other, other people with, with severe mental illness. I mean, 25% of fatal police shootings have to do with someone with a mental illness. So there's lots of political organizations you get involved in. Um, and you don't have to, you know, you have to go very far. You just Google that. But I think as, as professionals, we, we really have to do that. Because otherwise, you're just like, you know, you just, you burn out. You know, it's, it's a tough job. You have to feel that you're part of something moving forward, not just doing the same thing over and over again. Absolutely. What have you seen um, some of the advocacy efforts? Like, what does it lead to fruition in some ways, just to give people a picture of what could happen with advocacy? Yeah. So, I mean, what we what, what I write about in the book Bedlam uh, is that you know we we see that advocacy really. Uh, got them to stop building a $3 billion, 4,000 bed mental health jail, which was still a jail, it was run by the sheriffs, you know, a jail for people with mental illness, and divert that money towards community engagement, to community treatment. And uh, there's actually a wonderful judge who's just appointed as a consequence of some of this action in Los Angeles, uh, John, Judge Songhai is her name, and and I've I've spoken to her and spoken with her on panels several times, and basically her job is to divert people out of the criminal justice system, so you know people with mental illness get off and get picked up for misdemeanors and felony crimes, as a consequence they end up in the jail and sometimes prison system. Her job is to, to divert those people through mental health courts and get those people into, into treatment. Um, so we see that, you know, we, we, we really see some concrete change. You know, there was a, in 2010, Patrick Kennedy and many others in Congress passed a parity bill, which means that if you have a mental illness, you get the same degree of care as if you had a medical illness. And that's really important because insurance companies 
discriminate against people with mental illness. They stop treatment. They say you only get 30 days, you only get 10 days, whatever. And now because of that parity bill, um, we now have much more equitable treatment. And what we can do when the treatment's not equitable is under the federal uh, government, under, under federal statutes, we could, we could sue the insurance company and say, you're violating you know, the Parity Act of 2010. So you know, um, we've seen lots of changes and you know, very, very good changes uh, as a consequence of advocacy. And it's really all advocacy, frankly. It's all people demanding that there be a change. You know, we've seen that in every disease, cancer, HIV, that the, 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 the disease course has been altered. The medical care has been vastly improved, largely as a consequence of people advocating for themselves and for their loved ones. And I know that you know, you touch on this briefly in your film, but you go more in depth in a lot of these topics in your book. So I just wanted to to share that with people. And and I know that we uh, uh, you know have a few minutes left. And I wanted to bring up something that felt you know very present today, which is which is COVID, right? And that right. it's almost not honoring the times if if we don't think about COVID and how it's been impactful in mental health. And something I, I was personally reflecting on is how when COVID first began, it was a community feeling of we're all in this together and we're all experiencing all these changes together. And a year in now is it shifted where we are still ex having, having um, you know, COVID change our lives, but now it's much more individualized of how we've kind of dealt with it and coped with it and how we're kind of functioning now. And so how do you feel like one year later, our society's, you know, doing, you know, mentally? Well, I think that, you know, COVID has, I think we're doing well overall, frankly, but I think COVID has taken an incredible toll on us economically, socially, and probably most of all, most of all psychologically. You know, 20% uh, is estimated of, of COVID cases people who have had or have COVID have psychological consequences as a result maybe of biological changes in the, in the, in the brain from the illness. Certainly the fears of COVID kind of you know, really mess with our brains. The fears that you know, the lives of our, our quarantined asocial lives are you know, lives that where we had been very involved and engaged with others. Now that, that came to a halt with COVID and, thank God is coming to a change. Now, I think that's all had a great and, and terrible impact on us. And I think that, you know, the impact will be there for years to come. I think many people, especially people experience losses in, them, in, in their families, um, you know, really are suffering greatly. And, and I, I hope that people will avail themselves of psychological services to deal with those losses. Um, it's, you know, it's, I mean, it's just, it's just, just, just a lot to deal with. So I think that to answer your question, Stephanie, I think we're, you know, we're we're on the other side of the pandemic, but we're probably just beginning to see the neuropsychiatric and psychological ramifications of this pandemic. I think um, one of the one of the benefits that I've seen with with COVID is just more of the uh, acceptance, whether it's through your health insurance or or people with uh, telehealth. Which has oh, been yes. 
uh, expand services and access of services to people and uh, insurance companies have weighed co-pays and, and whatnot and, and, and really try to make it much more accessible. So I think that's one benefit that I've seen um, through. Well, absolutely, telehealth has really democratized mental health care. You know, telehealth developed years ago because there were no psychiatrists in rural communities. So if you needed a psychiatrist, you would find one through telehealth. You know, at your local emergency room, perhaps they would connect you to a psychiatrist, maybe 500 miles away. But I think now everyone's everyone's doing it, and I, I wrote a piece in the Washington Post not too long ago about that. That I think it really enables folks to to get more care. Now, I, I hope the benefits you, you talk about the insurance companies lifting their, you know, their their limits on telehealth. I, I hope those benefits stay because um, I think that's one of the one of the things we've learned in COVID that you could pretty, you know, communicate pretty effectively as you and I are doing right now through, you know, through Zoom and, and through the internet. And certainly you could communicate that way uh, to your patients and to your, your healthcare providers very effectively. And you don't really have to, you know, commute for three hours to find a, a good healthcare professional. So I hope telehealth, the benefits of telehealth will remain. Agreed. And just with our last few moments, what's what's next for you, or what's next? Oh, well, I mean, I'm an addiction psychiatrist, probably with Cornell, and my my job, my main job, is being an addiction psychiatrist. But we have other films that we're working on, and other books, and I'm, I'm very excited and eager to share them with your audience when when we're done. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Rosenberg, for this time and and all your valuable insights. And we hope to speak to you very soon. Thank you so much for having me.